This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Hey, everyone. Today, we have a special guest, Alexis Coda. Alexis is a core faculty EM attending at the Nazareth Emergency Medicine Residency Program in Philadelphia. Alexis is going to cover some marine envenomations and also trauma. Without further ado, let's get to Alexis. People are having increased contact with the ocean. Whether it's recreational activities or eating seafood, the likelihood that someone has some sort of exposure to the ocean is increasing. Furthermore, with how connected the world is, it's not impossible for you to encounter someone who has recently traveled from a coastal area to your shop in the middle of the country. And let's be real, people put some crazy creatures in their aquariums. We're going to be talking about marine trauma, large and small, ingestions, and infections to give you some practical tips on how to best take care of these patients and to pass your boards. When you think about major marine trauma, you probably think of shark attacks. Shark bites can be pretty serious, but for the most part tend to be minor trauma affecting arms and legs. Death results from hemorrhage, but most injuries tend to be soft tissue damage. You can get some serious neurovascular injuries, however. Sharks tend to cause tearing injuries because they don't really chew their food. I know, so rude. Sharks aren't the only creatures that can cause major trauma, though. Barracuda, giant grouper, sea lions, seals, and even crocodiles and alligators have been known to cause some significant traumatic injuries. Some of the main takeaways for how to treat these are to, number one, make sure the patient is safe. First, to remove them from the water and make sure they're no longer in danger of attack or drowning. Then the mainstay is to, number two, give supportive management. Typical trauma protocols, ABCs, and controlling the bleeding. You know, normal stuff. Then you want to, three, make sure you've gotten radiographs or other imaging to identify retained foreign bodies, potential for open fracture, and some periosteal stripping. Then number four, you may want to consider getting a wound culture as there are some atypical halophilic bacteria that can infect the skin. We'll talk more about infections later, but suffice to say that number five, you may not want to suture the wound because of the high risk of infection. For the most part though, marine trauma tends to be of the minor variety. There are over 2,000 different species in the ocean that are venomous or poisonous to humans. These tend to be either bites, stings, or injury from nematocysts, which are stinging cells. All marine envenomations can cause localized pain, erythema, and warmth. Other dermatologic symptoms include urticaria, burning, and itching. Certain species can cause localized paresthesias, such as sponges, jellyfish, cone snails, and lionfish. Systemic symptoms can sometimes be the result of a pain response and include GI symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain, and neurologic symptoms such as headache, dizziness, and weakness. But these envenomations have been known to cause other symptoms, including hypotension, syncope, respiratory distress, arrhythmia, fever, chills, sweating, and muscle cramps. Although these symptoms may be more caused by the pain response, toxins can be responsible for some of the systemic symptoms. These creatures do produce a variety of toxins, which may be causing these symptoms. Now that you've gotten a general overview of how these envenomations tend to present, we're going to talk a bit more about specific creatures. These creatures can be divided into the broad categories of invertebrates and vertebrates. 
the marine invertebrates include sea urchins, sea stars, cone snails, sea cucumbers, octopuses, bristle worms, and a large phylum of creatures known as the nadarians, which include jellyfish. They can cause all of the symptoms I have mentioned before, but a few of them have some notable presentations. Sea urchins, for example, can cause synovitis if their spines break off in the joint, and their wounds can cause discoloration without a retained foreign body. Sea cucumbers, meanwhile, when threatened, release a substance that can cause corneal injury and blindness. The blue-ringed octopus, meanwhile, has a more unique presentation. So the thing is, all octopuses have venom, but the only one that is particularly dangerous to people is the blue-ringed octopus found in the Indo-Pacific region primarily off of Australia. These are pretty fun creatures that warn potential predators off by flashing bright blue rings off around their body. They have a tetrodotoxin-like venom, and if you have ever heard about tetrodotoxin before, you are probably familiar with the fact that this can be ingested when pufferfish, or fugu, is improperly prepared. Bites from the octopus tend to cause a small, painless puncture mark, which may develop into a wheel with some erythema and tenderness. They can cause respiratory arrest within 10 minutes, but if the patient doesn't present that way initially, they can have other neurologic symptoms such as a flaccid paralysis, paraoral and intraoral paresthesias, and can lead to respiratory failure. These symptoms tend to resolve over 24 to 48 hours, but can last up to 5 days. Similarly, the cone snail causes some localized pain, which can range from a slight sting to excruciating pain. They have a variety of toxins which include sodium, potassium, and calcium channel blockers, acetylcholine receptor antagonists, hyaluronidases, proteases, and lipases. They can cause partial paralysis over 30 minutes, which can be a spastic or flaccid paralysis, and can lead to respiratory failure. These are pretty fun-looking creatures that people don't interact with much, usually. People tend to be exposed when a diver picks up a pretty looking shell and doesn't realize the deadly cone snail is inside. The treatment for both is largely supportive, but it is important to note that for the cone snail, there is a theoretical risk of worsening arrhythmia with sodium channel blockers, and they should be avoided. The last invertebrates we're going to talk about are the nadarians. This is a huge group of animals which cause a large amount of envenomations. They cause more envenomations than any other phylum. What they have in common is that they have specialized stinging cells that are a spring-loaded venom sac that penetrate their prey. The nadarians include box jellyfish, true jellyfish, sea anemones, and a group of organisms that include the dreaded Portuguese man-o-war. For the most part, these creatures tend to cause localized dermatologic reactions, but a few of these species have unique presentations, so we'll talk about these more in detail. The Portuguese man-of-war is not a true jellyfish, but a collection of organisms that nonetheless have stinging cells. They are found off the eastern coast of the U.S., Gulf of Mexico, and Australia, and they have that classic pneumophore that helps them float along at the surface. Their classic presentation includes a string of pearls, linear erythematous eruption with localized paresthesia that develops over 30 minutes. But it can occasionally cause respiratory distress and can lead to death by drowning. The rash from this particular species may benefit from treatment with vinegar, and some in vitro studies show that fresh water may block discharge of the stinging cells, which is particularly different from all the other jellyfish species. Next, we're going to talk about two species of box jellyfish, whose venom is actually worse than that of the Portuguese man-o-war, and are arguably one of the deadliest in the world. Now I'm going to pause and apologize for my pronunciations here. 
all of the pronunciations that I heard were Australian, and as you can probably tell, I am not Australian. The first species are the sea wasp or Chironex flicari. They are found in the tropical Pacific Ocean and Indian Oceans. Stings from these creatures cause some of the most severe pain and often have systemic toxicity. It's important to note that box jellyfish do have an antivenom, and so if a patient is suffering from systemic symptoms, you should strongly consider administering this. The next species to talk about are the Carukia barnesi jellies that cause Irukandji syndrome. These box jellies are found off of northern Australia and typically cause a local dermatologic reaction, but they do cause a specific presentation to know about called Irukandji syndrome. These include a number of systemic symptoms mostly related to catecholamine excess in their sequela, such as severe hypertension, elevated troponin, sweating, tachycardia, piloerection, agitation, and an impending sense of doom. Localized symptoms appear between 5 and 40 minutes after the sting, and systemic symptoms can take up to 48 hours to resolve. For the hypertension seen with these envenomations, common treatments include phentolamine, magnesium, and nitroglycerin, although it might be prudent to use a short-acting titratable drug such as nitroprusside or nicardipine. Like with cocaine ingestions, some sources say that you should avoid beta blockers due to unopposed alpha-adrenergic stimulation. It's recommended that if someone is suspected to have an envenomation from one of these creatures, that you observe for 6 to 8 hours to make sure that they do not develop systemic symptoms. It is also important to keep in mind that while initially patients may suffer from severe hypertension, they may progress to a more hypotension-like picture. Because of this, some sources recommend avoiding verapamil. So that concludes all of the invertebrate envenomations. We're now going to move on to the vertebrate envenomations. First, we're going to talk about the venomous fish. These include stonefish, scorpionfish, weaverfish, lionfish, which you can find in the Indo-Pacific region as well as off the eastern coast of the U.S., and even catfish. By far the most severe envenomation is from stonefish. They are found in tropical waters of the Pacific as well as along the East African coastline. It causes severe local pain that peaks within 30 to 90 minutes and occasionally causes some systemic symptoms such as the constitutional, cardiac, GI, and neurologic symptoms that we talked about before. Symptoms tend to last 4 to 6 hours, but can last several days. Scorpionfish can also cause warm erythematous vesicles and intense pain that lasts for hours. They can be found off the coast of California and Australia. Envenomations from weaverfish found in Mediterranean and European waters can also cause necrosis. You should observe patients with these envenomations for at least 2 hours and consider giving the antivenom that's available for stonefish. The next group of vertebrates that we're going to talk about include the stingray. There are approximately 1,500 to 2,000 stingray injuries in the U.S. per year. It usually occurs when a person steps on a stingray hiding in the sand and the creature whips up its tail covered in retroserrated venomous spines. These spines have a heat labile toxin, which usually causes immediate intense localized pain that can last for hours or even up to 48 hours. Injuries from these creatures can cause significant bleeding and occasionally dusky coloring. Death from these creatures is rare, but seems to be primarily due to thoracoabdominal injury, like in the case of Steve Irwin. The last group of creatures that we're going to talk about in this minor trauma section include venomous sea snakes. These creatures can be distinguished from other animals such as eels by the fact that they have flat, valve-like nostril flaps and flat tails. 
They are not overly aggressive creatures, and most bites occur when a fisherman is bringing in a catch and the snake happens to be in the net. Only 20% of these bites cause significant envenomation, but of these significant envenomations, up to 40% can be fatal. Their bites can be minimally painful or even painless, but symptoms can progress to GI symptoms, headache, confusion, rhabdomyolysis, AKI, an ascending spastic or flaccid paralysis, pupillary changes, respiratory failure, seizure, and coma between 30 minutes and 6 hours after the bite. Treatment is largely supportive, though you should consider administering the available polyvalent sea snake antivenom. So now we're going to get into the really controversial bit, the treatment of these minor envenomations. Since there is so much controversy, boards and other tests probably will steer clear of these, but it's still super helpful to know. The quality of evidence for treatments is not great. It's pretty impossible to do a double-blinded randomized control trial when temperature or physical manipulation is involved. Besides the fact that it's impossible to blind these studies properly, the other problem with the literature is that it's very species-specific, and all the studies contradict each other. Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I got stung by a jellyfish, I wasn't like, ah yes, Pelagia noctiluca, now I know exactly what treatment I should look up. For the most part, hot water seems to be a safe recommendation and helpful for almost all marine envenomations. Where it gets a little tricky is that most sources state that fresh water can cause nematocyst discharge, and so if you are at all concerned that the person was stung by a jellyfish, it's not recommended to use fresh water, but rather seawater. These stings can be pretty painful, so it's also a pretty safe recommendation to offer analgesia, and this can include topical anesthetics. Some other treatments that have some positive results in the literature include antihistamines and glucocorticoids, baking soda, and a solution called Stingos. It's also pretty important to consider removing stinging cells, and a variety of mechanisms have been proposed such as using shaving cream and a razor, forceps, rubber cement, facial peels, tape, or even credit cards, although you must be somewhat careful with some of these methods because pressure has been known to discharge nematocysts. There has been some discussion in the literature about considering pressure immobilization, particularly with cone snails, the blue-ringed octopus, and sea snakes. But it's not particularly helpful with jellyfish, so don't use it for that. Some treatments that have some mixed reviews include sand as a means of removing the stinging cells, ice packs, and vinegar. So some sources state that vinegar is pretty good for sea cucumbers, bristle worms, sponges, sea bathers eruption, and certain species of jellyfish. But other sources show that vinegar can cause nematocysts to discharge, so it's probably easiest to steer clear of this since you're not always 100% sure what species of jellyfish or marine invertebrate stung the person. Generally, Australian jellies might benefit from vinegar, while in the US it's best to avoid vinegar. Although, there are still some species exceptions. I give this treatment option a thumbs down, since it's unlikely that you will know exactly what species stung the patient. Now to the definite please avoid treatments. What you should definitely avoid using are ethanol, ammonium, urine, which is definitely an old wives' tale, which may actually make things worse, and fresh water. That concludes our section on minor trauma. So just to review, our key takeaways can be boiled down to five do's and five don'ts. For the do's, number one, use heat. Use warmed, potentially salty water to inactivate toxins. Number two, remove foreign bodies like spines or stinging cells. 
Number three, provide pain relief like topical anesthetics. Number four, use glucocorticoids and antihistamines. And number five, give antivenom if applicable. For the don'ts, number one, don't use urine or ammonia. Number two, avoid ethanol. Number three, don't use fresh water to remove nematocysts. Number four, avoid friction as a means of removing stinging cells. And number five, don't use vinegar depending on your location. Next time, we're going to talk about some marine ingestions as well as infections to look out for. This material is pretty good boards fodder, so I would stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. 